Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Dan Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Tara Branham, Yasmin Mikael, and Tanuja Jagernoth of How to Pick a Lock. How are you today? Hello. Good. How are you? Good. <laughs> really good. Yeah. It is definitely a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> Like it feels <laughs> whatever that means. I, it feels very. I mean, do you have any? What like strikes you when you think Tuesday? Anything or? I mean, tired from Monday. So many days left in the week. Like, isn't? I feel like I've heard this somewhere. Like, isn't Tuesday just worse than Monday because it's like Monday, but not mm. we, like because at least with Monday, like you can complain about it, and people are like, yeah, <laughs> I, get I like that. Tuesday. Cause I feel like I get I feel like I get good work done on Tuesdays. Cause Mondays Mondays is just lost. Mondays I just kind of write off as like I'm gonna be in a bad mood. I'm gonna be tired. But then Tuesday I feel like, all right, this is thoroughly a weekday. This is mm-hmm. definitely a weekday. Let's do some stuff. And so I, I usually get good work done on Tuesdays. I feel the opposite. Oh really? Yeah. Like I grind super hard on Mondays, and then I like. Mm-hmm grind myself out on Mondays mm. so then Tuesday comes around and I'm like oh I should really just like sleep the whole day <laughs> yeah. when I yes. can yeah. but you, so you're one of those people that like thrives on Monday like you you like pick up the energy of what Monday has to offer I think it's like if I can get it all done on Monday then the rest of my week will just be like icing on the cake yeah yeah so yeah. you get the things that you absolutely have to get done done yeah I will always love Tuesday because um, Tuesday is the day that um, I first had um, a writer group at Chicago Dramatists, and um, it was the best thing ever. Um, We would sit around um, when we first started it. Um, It was implemented at Chicago Dramatists by Mia McCullough. Um, It was wonderful, and it was called RAC, um, Risk accountability and access and community and the whole idea was to get um playwrights together to hear each other's work um geek out um give each other feedback um and over the course of eight weeks the first four weeks we would workshop pieces amongst each other and then the last four weeks someone quote unquote from the industry would come in hear the work give their feedback from their own perspective and that person could be a director could be a dramaturg um but it just became my favorite, my favorite thing. And so Tuesday, I will always associate with that group, um, even though it is no longer happening. I, I love that's beautiful that like when a day gets to become part of a routine. Like we do a thing on Sundays that's called Sunday dinner, mm-hmm. where we just like have people over and we cook food, and it's just like so. We like cook p- food. We talk about the pits and the peaks of our week, mm-hmm. and then we play a game. Ooh. it's even when we don't have it it's made like sunday very much and i mean like sunday already has you know name a name a cultural significance to someone that may that they may have about sundays but it's made that day especially like personally very just like a day of rest and mm-hmm. and community and importance yeah it's so good it's anyway really nice I like that it kind of subverts the Sunday blues thing too. Do you ever get the Sunday blues? Yeah, well, that, that's the the thing that's interesting is so because I at this point, like if you know me, I've probably invited you to Sunday dinner, and like uh, a lot of people are always like, I just I can't get out of my house mm-hmm. on a Sunday. Like mm-hmm. I just like and, and I'm like I totally trust me, I get it. Like at this point, I've heard that more often than there are all people that come to Sunday dinner. Mm-hmm. Not I'm shocked that people yeah. ever come. You know, yeah, like I wouldn't. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's why you host. Yes. <laughs> For real, though. That is real. Egg Zach. We already talked. So, I, like, I always love markers of a podcast of what's going on, like, in the world. And so I, I want to mention that we have talked about the egg. Mm-hmm. If anyone is, is is unaware of what we're talking about, it's... I wonder if... So, my favorite... Not gonna lie, I don't want to spend too long on the egg. I just want to mention that my, one of my favorite recurring podcast things, and I feel like you would appreciate this, Yasmin, is um, mm. ha- the thought of someone twenty years from now listening to a, any given podcast episode, and I very frequently just oh. want to make that person laugh. Like I just want that person to be like, "That's fucking weird." Like, and, and so like the <laughs> the egg it. thing is a, a thing that I wonder if that person is now going to go like, what world record egg are they talking about? And then mm-hmm. be like, that happened. Because at that point, like, will Instagram exist? Like, if it does exist, mm-hmm. like, what post beat the egg? Like, I don't know. Anyway. All right. We should... I'm so sorry that I now... <laughs> no, um, I love it. I love it. Because, yeah, now I'm having questions about the world of this fictional person. And, like, what kind of like doctoral dissertation is going to spark off because of your egg on this podcast right or whatever yeah yeah because isn't that just how inspiration strikes like where you're just listening to something random and they mention something else random and you're like well i gotta write a thesis about this now like now my whole life course has changed right okay all right i'm so sorry we're gonna get into i want to i want to so how to pick a lot you like broke tara i'm like oh my god is there gonna be an egg monument i'm like what's gonna be egg two and is it gonna be a chicken what is gonna be what's what gonna came happen first <laughs> i mean like these are the questions that are cycling through my brain so okay. i'm glad that that's where i'm at right now and if you're trying to get weird we can go there we can do that i mean i'm down we don't need the egg to get us weird (laughs) it is 9 45 on a tuesday like let's fucking whatever i do also just want to say i really appreciate um you all making the time because it's it's really nice to sit down with you and and just talk about it is definitely i always forget this we don't do uh post nine o'clock podcast recordings often enough Mm. And I always forget the like the special magic that comes on <laughs> when you put people down in front of a microphone after nine o'clock. For some reason, it just like <laughs> enters a fun space. I, okay, I would we, we I would feel terrible if we did not <laughs> if we did not <laughs> seven minutes. <laughs> we've covered the most important things like yeah, I think we're what good, Tuesday right? means to me and like the egg yeah. yeah and today I learned about the egg like yeah. I didn't believe that I would learn something tonight yeah and you have taught me well and now Tuesday is gonna have a whole new meaning for you because every week it'll be the anniversary of you learning about the egg wow. every week will be the anniversary huh the week anniversary. The week anniversary. Nice. Yeah, my writer nice. group and the egg together <laughs> forever. Now I feel like I have to get you an egg eraser for when you're working on a play. Do it. So Do you it. Think about it. Wow. Do it. Beautiful. So, how to pick a lock? Please. So one of the th- how we usually always start is just kind of like, can you introduce to our audience what this is about? This work is about. <laughs> oh, thank you nervous habit oh i have so many of those i didn't even notice that though nice work on the (laughs) catching it anyway how to pick a lock what's it about 
Yeah, you're what good. is it? What, you're let's start with. Let's start with. What is it not about? Yeah. Cool, cool. No, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm kind of ready. Um, how to pick a lock is a play. Um, I would say about. The ways in which um, I think we fight each other and ourselves to actualize our visions um, due to potentially maybe fear of our power, fear of um, making a connection that you could potentially lose, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I'm just really obsessed with prison abolition. I would consider myself a prison abolitionist. And... Um, thanks to the work of prison abolitionists, and I can send you links and resources. I don't know if this podcast provides those um, for readers, like on a blog or something like that. We can definitely put stuff in the description. Okay, sounds good. Because I'm a big um, just appreciator and reader of bloggers like Miriam Kaba, who's a prison abolitionist and organizer, and um, Raina Gossett, um, Dean Spade, um, and other awesome prison abolitionist thinkers and i love that there's the work of prison abolition is all about how do we make prisons obsolete Mm -hmm. but then also extinct and can we collectively create a world in which um we have alternatives to calling the police we have also Mm -hmm. alternatives to um and strategies for dealing with conflict amongst each other um, that don't shame, further harm, uh, punish, ostracize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> um, the questions about how do we live prison abolition in our everyday lives, that that's what the play is grappling with. Um, um, yeah, that, the concept of of, you know, resolving conflict outside of the police is something that actually this neighborhood is very passionate about. Um, Down the street over on Argyle, um, there's this group called Axis Lab that they host events occasionally. It was a a series, Mm -hmm. it was a um, educational series that provided alternatives to handling situations where traditionally folks would call the police and it was it was like it was such a powerful and important series because on argyle there are a lot of there are there's a lot of homelessness and i think that a lot of businesses are tempted to resolve quote resolve the those issues using the police Mm -hmm. and the problem is the police in that area are not of the culture there mm-hmm. and so there's no sympathy there's and there's no empathy there um so yeah like the i think that there should be, be more of that mm-hmm. yeah one well, i so that is a very important and interesting piece to this and i think that one thing that we um te- we like to kind of think about and ask about with this kind of thing is it's it's well it's entirely what what uh, we at Scopy really care about is riding these this line between mm-hmm. the artistic and the political. Okay, and um, that is an interesting space because when you have something that because first off, like there's it's such a um, like the degree to which you 
need see I don't want to like answer my question before I ask it mm-hmm. like how much when you've when you've tackled this work um, how much have you felt the need to educate the audience mm-hmm. how much have you worked to to not do that like at how is that balance mm-hmm. with like you know the storytelling aspect and, mm-hmm. and the kind of creative I mean not that it's not mm-hmm. you know what I mean though like mm-hmm. the, the, the the arc <clears throat> of it yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I should say the play began as just an image in my head. Sure. And the image was of four femmes um, trying to pick a lock together um, and kind of fumbling with it and um, having that difficulty. And that was just really fascinating to me. So I was like, I'm going to write that. And um, what's kind of awesome, what's really awesome about having a writer group um, I was able to write the thing and bring it in, half-baked, um, hear it out loud, be completely horrified, mm-hmm. because, um, oh yeah, I'm going to tell the whole story. So, <laughs> <laughs> rolls up sleeves. Yeah. Gets comfortable. Hear it out loud. I'm completely horrified, because the half-baked first draft, um, oh, the characters took over. Um, two of them fell in love. Um, <laughs> completely subverted my political agenda. <laughs> and um, I was like, the play has become completely derailed by this romance that I am not trying to write. Um, and so um, I... Uh, happened to attend the opening party for Chicago Theater Now, the magazine that was cool. launched by Amanya Narula. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was waiting to use a restroom. And Olivia Lilly, um, who I had just met through the writer group, um, she was one of the guests. Um, oh, my God. We were just standing there waiting to use a restroom. Um, and we just started talking. And I think Olivia just asked me, how are you? And I think I was like, I, or no, Olivia asked me what I'm working on. I'm like, oh, I'm working on this awful hot mess of a play. Here's what happened. I heard it out loud. It was horrifying. Um, Yada, yada, yada. And Olivia was like, oh, um, well, you should just have a reading of it at Prop. Um, Olivia Lilly is the artistic director of Prop Theater. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, cool. And so then we started putting that together. Um... Tara Branham became the director of the reading. Um, we submitted a second draft of the play for RhinoFest. Um, it was accepted. Um, and um, yeah, so I've been struggling with this concept for over a year, trying to basically um, <laughs> bridge this political, strong political idea of mine with these characters that um are real and i love these well the thing that's so interesting to me about these spectrums is that they're so expansive like the thing that um i thought so i've now for whatever reason i don't know why like i don't normally do this when it's something local but i just keep i was googling a couple times like how to pick a lock like Mm. looking for i don't know what i was even looking for but like, but then it just kept coming up the, like, because it sounds very much like one of those Google searches, like, how to insert thing. Right. And, and so now I've, like, read a couple times the, mm-hmm. like, how to, 
how to pick a lock thing and it's like really funny to me like the the degree like the 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 like so because because let's go there like the piece that's really cool is the idea of taking something that is expansive as wanting to um talk about the political uh need or uh, issue of prison abolition and also then balancing that with a storytelling piece that these characters start coming to life but then that's all through something as and this is something that i've been you know i, I don't think i've mentioned this on the podcast but like um, the last month i got really into pc building and the thing that's mm -hmm. like so comforting to me as a creative for that is how pragmatic and mm. and like uh someone told me it's like oh it's like you're a digital blacksmith and it's like yeah it's like so satisfying <laughs> like like you're just there's no there's no nebulous you know it's like i think it's hard when you're when you're a creative of where you're not like a your 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 craft isn't like a trade like mm -hmm. you don't end up with something in your hand yeah it is really satisfying to find something where you're like, there's like a mark of success, like whether it's building a PC or whether it's picking a lock and then mm -hmm. the door opens. Sure. Like, I think it's, I think that that is that much more impactful when you're not used to there being a traditional mark of success in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I yeah. found oh. so fascinating about this play is that the way that we bring this education into it is that Tanuja has written it as an interactive skill share. It's something that I've never been able to witness or work on as a theater maker, figuring out a way how we don't have just an audience watching a play happen and then walking away from it. Um, so something that is so valuable about what are these resources, what are the tools we have, by inserting an audience and having that framework has been super palpable in the room and the way that our actors are even to come up and ask questions and the tactical skill of how to pick a lock is the main thread, but it, so there's a different reason each character needs to learn that skill. So always coming back to that purpose of why do we need to pick a lock has been really great in that room and putting it together. And extending that into the metaphor of like, what does collective liberation look like? And how does lockpicking become a metaphor for that? Um, and how in this room where the Skillshare is happening, do these characters get in the way and hurt each other or help each other um, on that path? Mm -hmm. Wow. This is so cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so... You know, you you overcame the narrative roadblock. I hope. <laughs> Whatever, they're totally but, still in love. It's an interesting. So this, the other piece that's really interesting is the the in progress nature of it. So um, it goes I up hope in so. it goes up in eight days, right? Um, well, and that's what I. This is what I love about uh, our podcast is that we kind of it's it's really it's a unique thing to get to talk to someone at this stage of the creative process, you know, like where, like, so let's go. So how, <laughs> how are you all feeling? Let's go like how, where, cause it's an interesting. So are you in tech at this point or is it starting soon? Is there a, a tech like, 
So Rhino Fest is different. So let's just mm. uh, festivals in general are going to have a different structure than sure. like you might with a traditional like we go through rehearsals and then we go through a play. And then especially because this is the development of a play in process, it has an entirely new set of rules. Um, we've established collective agreements and collective expectations to delineate that process and to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up for disappointment based off of what we think a process should look mm. like and instead we get to define what our process is and what our markers of success are um and so right now we have had two days in the space um we could call that tech um it is the tech time that is allotted to us and because of the nature of the play i am eschewing the use of most technical elements mm -hmm. um especially because i think i'm on draft seven since i got the play five weeks ago um so it is constantly changing and so the idea of like having something that is really mired with technical processes is not mm -hmm. useful for the play in this stage of development and maybe ever. Mm -hmm. um, so right now we are blocking the most recent draft of the play. Um, the actors are like, <laughs> I'm cramming my lines into my brain and we're like, any lines mm. that you don't have, you're gonna have a script with you, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and they're like, but what if? And I'm like, it's okay. We have already established that if you are on book, that is not a failure of this process. Yep. Maybe when we get to the fifth performance, you'll have them all memorized. Or maybe Tanuja will have rewritten the play again and you'll be on book. <laughs> um, and Evil. all of those things are, uh, are allowed and don't define success. Success is Tanuja getting to write the play that Tanuja wants to write. That's awesome. I uh, The thing that I keep that we've actually talked about a little bit recently that is in a thought that I think is interesting is relevant to this, which is we were talking to someone about their work that was like more in the surreal realm. Um, and we were like asking like, what, what are kind of like your goalposts? Like what are you, as when you're in the room and the, and you're in a space where, the doing is as outweighing the analytical end. Like, where do you? What are you? What are you working towards? And it it was not the working towards something. It was more the working towards not having meaning. And that is that I found a really interesting parallel in like the conversation around how to that I think a lot of outlets have in how to verbalize the prioritization of non-men, of non-white men. And I think it's that's a really interesting piece because I think that there are a lot of, for like establishment organizations, it's really easy to want to go like, oh, well, let's list everything. But then like, you know, I'm just saying like, oh, well, women and then femme and then, oh, should we use the X? Should we not use the X? Should we say LGBTQ? Should we say the, pl like, it's like, and then it, it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, well, like we have, like, how do you become, how are you the most inclusive in a list? And it's like, sometimes the most powerful thing is just saying not white men, not the, not the, the majority, not the patriarchy. And I, that is such a, that thinking, the like kind of reversing of expectation and like technical, 
like uh, sta- standard, I guess. Like, I and if I'm totally off base with like this being a parallel or not, please like let me know. But I th- <laughs> I think it's an interesting space and and kind of like unprecedented in its. I mean, maybe not unprecedented. I don't know. Like that. So all of that is to actually the actual question that I have is: Do you do you find yourself wanting a goalpost in that in that space or do you is it not about does that make does this make sense uh i think so uh, i'm gonna say the question back see if that's what you're asking um so you're saying is it useful to have goals that are concrete and tangible yeah yeah um i would say that it's absolutely useful to have goals that are cr- concrete and tangible um and it's also useful to know that um, the relationships that we're building with each other as collaborators are more important than any tangible goals. Yeah. Um, this idea, I think, okay. So I think that when we look at nonprofits and when we look at nonprofit theater and especially even nonprofit theater within the Chicago storefront theater community, we get really caught up in product because it is a part of a capitalist system and how are we sacrificing each other on Mm -hmm. a daily and hourly basis Mm -hmm. for this product like it is something that we are taught from the moment that we enter the arts the play is the thing the show must go on and i suppose my challenge is at what cost at whose cost and why why are we all willing to sacrifice everything in order for a play Mm-hmm. Why are we willing to sacrifice artists and why are we, we willing to sacrifice each other? And uh, so when Tanuja approached me about this process, uh, that was a major experiment point for me because I do believe RhinoFest provides you with a unique opportunity for experimentation. And something that I have been working on for years is getting to a person-centered process that is actually person-centered as opposed to sort of the trappings of person-centered, right? We say words like safe space. We say words like... Um, nah, anyway. We say, we say words like safe space. Mm-hmm. And how does that create a setup where we're all saying the right things, but nobody means the right things? Mm-hmm. And everyone's still afraid. And everyone still performs when they're sick because they're afraid their understudy is going to be better than them. And everybody still goes in for this audition, even though they're afraid to work with a person because they don't want to be seen as being like hateful or dishonest or difficult. And instead, ending the rant, um, (laughs) how can we center the people who are the most vulnerable in these processes, which often tends to be the actors who are often the least paid um do the most Mm -hmm. some of the most work outside of the rehearsal room that they are never compensated for Mm -hmm. and often the best they can hope for is minimum wage Mm -hmm. so that's something that i'm really looking to uh make concrete is the cost to artists and how are our artists actually our largest donors in the storefront Mm -hmm. theater community that's like that is a revolutionary thought because like genuinely mm-hmm. the the thought of because i don't know you look at 
Um, what's for some reason what's coming to me is the the show Slings and Arrows. Oh, for sure. Yeah, where like where everything has been sacrificed, every shred of artistic integrity in the in the company that is featured in that show has been sacrificed to please the whims of their largest donor. When in reality the largest donor you're right the largest donors the people who are donating most time the people who are donating their their sanity their you know their the best the quote best years of their life the you know whatever you know emotional vulnerability they are truly donating the most Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and i just think that those people are worth more than the the set that we throw in the trash well and can you imagine can you imagine how how much more rewarding the experience of participating in an artistic endeavor would be if the performers were treated with the same level of respect as high tier donors are i mean i'm hoping <laughs> and, to, and trying to imagine that right now and, and work and work up to it yeah, right so like, i mean yeah. exactly it's it's like <laughs> I don't know. My mom sits on a board at a at a theater in Milwaukee and like the the just the level of ass kissing <laughs> is mm-hmm. is That's what I find this process so radical. Like, what does it mean to have a peace corner in your rehearsal room? A literal space where there are things that make people happy. Essential oils and a giant beanbag chair. (laughs) That if you need to tap out of a process because it is too much, you have that right. And everyone else is there to lift you up. And it's an agreement that was collective. No judgment. It's been very liberating. Oh, my gosh. That, so that, because that's you know thinking about it this all being rooted in prison abolition like that is such an interesting piece because the word i keep thinking of is the word i keep what am i saying the word i keep thinking of is dismantling and the and the but then i think of that and immediately go like well like isn't there at this point like structures to dismantling and mm-hmm. is should we then just dismantle those structures and then like mm-hmm. at what point are like and, and that I, it's so that's kind of like the the piece that i don't know you're nodding a lot like where what 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 is that <laughs> yeah to you yeah no i'm i'm hearing your question and i'm just thinking like you know um i as a harm reductionist as well, um, you know, I think about we have to meet each other where we're at. Sure. And we have to meet ourselves where we're at. And so that means what resources do you have access to? Mm. What are your skills? What are your talents? What are your abilities? Um, what are your aptitudes? How can you bring your uniqueness? Um, and I, I, I'm kind of pushing us to get back to your initial question about, like, is the answer to transcend uniqueness in order to um transcend the trappings of meaning um whatever um embracing yourself embracing your singularity your uniqueness um and using all of that all that good stuff that complicated stuff that is yours in aid of liberation I'm, i'm really interested in that well and the um so that means sorry just so to finish the thought right like no how to pick a lock is not um a play about specifically literally um how to change policy um so that we're 
defunding certain things, right? Um, it's it's not the daily grind on the work or on the ground daily work that organizers are doing um, to literally confront the police, mm-hmm. right? And to, um, whether it's cop watch, um, filming the police, documenting police violence every single day, um, like the No Cop Academy campaign, right? Um, a play is not a campaign. Um, but going back to this idea of the everyday practices of prison abolition, um, which I learned about this idea from uh, Raina Gossett and Dean Spade through a four-part video series that was put out by the Barnard, I think it's a Center for Women's Studies, um, Women and Gender Studies, <clears throat> and it's really short. I can send you the link, um, but they just ask these questions um, about how do we practice prison abolition in our everyday lives, and the, the thing that was really compelling to me was we kind of do prison abolition in our everyday lives a lot. Like, if your friend gets, um, I think this is the example they use in the video series, like, if your friend gets drunk at your house on Sunday, right, they ate some vegan food, they played a game, they had a couple mimosas, I don't know, um, and they decide to drive home doing something illegal, are you going to call the cops on your friend? You might call them in for a conversation. You might say, I'm really concerned about you going home in this state. You might brainstorm alternatives to them driving home. You might call them an Uber or a Lyft. You might be like, hey, you can crash on my couch. You already envision alternatives to calling the police. And so it's this idea of like, what would it mean to extend that the next time you feel quote unquote unsafe in your home? Or the next time you're experiencing a crisis or an emergency um what would you require what's what networks of support would you require mental health support um violence intervention so on and so forth well and in some case just basic empathy and the Uh. and the willingness to have a conversation Mm -hmm. like for so i worked at a coffee shop where I was often working alone and this gentleman would come in and steal my tips. And my boss would tell me like, next time you see him come in, you need to call the police. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. There is cl- he's clearly experiencing homelessness. He, there is clearly other factors at play. I'm not going to call the police mm-hmm. because he's just going to get shoveled through the system and nothing will actually be accomplished. Mm-hmm. So next, the next time he, ca- whenever he would come in, I would just be like, if my boss sees you, she's going to call the police. I do not want to do that, so I'm asking you to please leave. And finally he was like, I'm sorry I keep stealing your tips. I'm in a really bad spot. I'm going to come back with a dollar, and I'm going to put it in your tip jar, because I feel bad. But I, And I'm sorry that I did that. And I was just like, okay, like that's fine, but I'm, I'm telling you, like, if you, you can't come in here if it's not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just like, okay. And it's like that, that understanding and that, that interaction, like wouldn't have happened if I had just been like, you know, immediately calling the police. Like there wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have, you know, offered to pay back the money that he had, that he had taken, which like, of course I was like, please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Cause whatever. But like, I don't know. There, it, 
there are just so many alternatives. There are so there are so many more decent ways <laughs> to handle bad situations. And it's and it's frustrating to me that that our that our fingers are so quickly, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that cultural work, I believe that is something we can do as artists, right? And I believe in cultural work. Yeah. I, absolutely, and I, that is—it's an interesting thing, right? Because that is very much part of it, but also not the same thing. Yeah. And it's it, yeah. It's such a as a journalist, the thing that yeah. I always yeah. come to with this kind of talk is is first off the struggle that I was having at the beginning of like because you never want to box things like and it's mm. but journalism is all about boxing things like that like very every time mm. you write something you're like oh i, I want to explain it in as few words as possible because that's what makes me a good journalist but it's like that's not that well, doesn't serve any con- sometimes those constraints are placed upon you right right and it's but but also it's like when you're writing on you know the literal like rejection of standard like it's it's anyway um Mm. i want to get more into the the creative process of of all of this so um how has how has that been how much of how much uh dialogue between and and obviously this is like partly a question that's already been answered but um how has what has kind of been the tools that have been helpful and and what have been the experience that you've had with having it be you know broad first draft then had a significant amount of, of dialogue and discourse and then have a second draft like how did that experience look Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, the first draft, hot mess, <laughs> and horrifying. Cool. Um, <laughs> Woo! Yeah, first draft. And <laughs> um, once um, the reading date was set for the table reading at Prop Theater, directed by Tara Branham, um, um, that deadline was so helpful. And so I... Um, finished up a play that had a reading on October 22nd and immediately started on draft number two. Um, and that involved, um, reading. Um, so I was like, okay, there are these two characters, they're in love or whatever. Um, I need to, um, (laughs) I need to center, um, some other stuff right now. Right. So, um, this kind of speaks to your point about rejecting a standard. I think what we're doing is choosing the center, choosing what to center, right? Um, choosing mm-hmm. the specific um, and choosing what is meaningful to center. So I was like, well, I want to get deeper into the thing that is most compelling to me, um, which is uh, the history of punishment. So I read <clears throat> a bit of um, Michel Foucault. Um, I read, um, um, Locked Down and Locked Out a little bit by Maya Shenwar um, and just kind of regrounded myself in um, just <laughs> the the politics of the play and just let that percolate. Um, and draft number two that came out was very... Three? Yeah, you're on three now. 
From the table reading? No, not from the table reading. Okay. Two from the table reading. I want to talk about the table reading draft because um, a new character emerged in draft number two. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that play is not the play that you're going to see mm -mm. that opens on January 23rd. Um, so... I guess I just felt this freedom, partly because I have a great director. Tara Branham is a brilliant director, and you should hire Tara Branham for all the things. But I also have, <laughs> look, I am so extra. I have a new play dramaturg, Alex Casillas, and I have a production dramaturg, Yasmin Mikhail, right? Who has two dramaturgs? Me. Yep. <laughs> um, so... Getting input from my dramaturgs, um, getting input um, from folks who attended the table reading, the actors, um, that absolutely um, gave me the feedback that I needed to bring in a draft number three. Yeah. And draft number three is the draft that we've been crafting into the production you're going to see. It feels like draft number seven. Yeah, three has become seven over the course of a few yeah. weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and is, has the editing process, ha has that happened in the rehearsal room? The literal editing of the script happens late at night well, in no. my home. <laughs> um, but no, I'm being silly. Um, <laughs> so some of it, yeah, some of the editing comes from comments that come out of rehearsal for sure. Um, some of it comes from conversations with my dramaturgs. Um, and most recently, can I? Do you yeah. want to talk about this process um, that we all actually? took part in sure yeah we maybe we can talk about it together yes um so uh, last thursday <laughs> um at like i don't know noon <laughs> i got tanuja's latest draft of the play and i was like this is 15 pages longer than it was um and <laughs> sitting at 105 it was 20 20 pages longer than it was and um i was like okay so I am certain that most, let's say like 90% of the play that we need is in these pages. I'm not certain that we need all of these pages. Um, and I knew Tanuja had a personal goal of like keeping the play under 90 minutes. I had like a secret crafty goal of keeping the play at 75 pages. Um, so at 105 pages, I was like, we should probably have a meeting. Um, <laughs> Director intervention. And that we did. And so uh, I'm fortunate that I met Tanuja <laughs> Uh, when I was the artistic producer at Chicago Dramatists and I knew Tunuja first as a rad dramaturg. Um, it's not that I didn't know that Tunuja wrote plays. I knew that, but I saw their like, oh, like skill and prowess in breaking apart plays. And they'll do these like amazing breakdowns. And I was like, I wonder if Tunuja had the chance to even look at her play from that perspective again because sometimes you know you get really close to a play and you're like I'm just gonna completely make the world replete right um and so I reached out to Nuja and I reached out to Yasmin and I was like can we break apart the play like break it down and do an, an action analysis which is basically 
Dana Lynn Formby, um, who was the interim artistic director of Chicago Dramatists for a minute, and then um, beyond that is just a tremendous playwright mm-hmm. um, and playwriting instructor and one of Tanuja's mentors. Yes. Um, has an action analysis, and the idea is that every action in a play taken by a character has a sacrifice in relationship to a major dramatic question. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but what that means is that if somebody um, challenges you, uh, there's something lost. And so if we can track through the whole play, we can make sure that it's a play told in action um, and not a play that exists um, in storytelling and or exposition. Not that there's not places for that, mm-hmm. but that sometimes you can just sort of like relax. And like, we don't want to play that relax. We want to play that moves and it's told in action and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. So we put posts up all over my wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, they're still there. Uh, so, so I think the first three and a half hours, we got through scene one out, yeah. of, out of eight scenes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, is this useful? Um, she's like, this is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And then I think we promptly scheduled like 12 more hours of meetings over the next two days um, to work through the rest of the play. Yeah. Yeah. And then Tanuja cut 20 pages. Yeah. Because she's a boss. Oh, no, no, no. And about that, <laughs> right, and I, I feel like if you have any playwrights listening, um, I think they will relate to the fact that, um, um, well, some will, some plays come out of your body, right? And this play, um, from the from the get-go, from messy, draft, hot, volcanic, tire fire mess, draft one was coming out of my body, Right. Um, despite what I had in my mind, right? And so when you're so in it, right, literally, I can look at all the characters and be like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that... Oh, God, I wish that wasn't me. Me. Um, so when you're so close to it, right, and seeing that reflected back at you now with directors present, asking, like, why does that character do that? It's like... What are you asking me that for? Like, <laughs> I don't know why I do that. Um, I mean, I don't know why they do that. <laughs> I mean, them. So anyway, when you're writing something really personal, yeah, it, it, it can be really hard to take that um, bird's eye view and have that structural look at things, which is why we bring on boss dramaturgs yes. um, who can do that for you and with you. Um, but it, it allowed me to see again. I think I said that a few times to Tara. Like, I can see the play again. Um, and that was a huge gift. So, yeah, playwrights, hire dramaturgs. And really, like, I think about the director playwright relationship and mm. um, find a director like Tara. I mean, someone who can meet you where you're at, who can really hold space for your process. Um, who can hear you when you're when you say I want it to be messy, mm. and not um, shy away from honoring that um. strong cosign directors? You have a lot of power, and so you can insist upon a dramaturg too. I think a lot of times dramaturgs are seen as luxury, um, and uh, I would say that they are. Mm-hmm integral mm-hmm. and we need to start thinking of them as such because they're there to be like the partner in crime of the play mm-hmm. and so when you're like in the thick and you're thinking about the production 
it's nice to have the dramaturg be like, hey, playwright, what about your play? Um, now, fortunately, we're in a process that centers mm-hmm. the development of the play, but mm-hmm. that's not always the case, mm-hmm. right? So dramaturgs, hire them, pay them, give yeah. them your money. How has this process <laughs> been for you as the dramaturg? It has been wild. It's been so great. I think it's really great because it has started from a place that centers everyone as having equal importance in the room and everyone has a voice. Um, and I've also decentered myself as someone who's supposed to be an expert of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're surrounded with so many people that bring so much to the table, you being there is enough. So I definitely wanted to empower my actors and my team that if you have questions that you cannot find answers to, or if you want to bring something to the group, just to be open and honest and like, this is what I found and this is what I think. And being very um, strategic in how we're sharing knowledge with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. Since we usually, most of us have the same resources when working in these processes. Um, But I've also learned so much in this process too. I have never done an action analysis that literally puts the play on the wall with color-coded post-it notes and to visualize it and see that when you have your like rows of actions that are orange and then you have three (laughs) purple expositions at the same time you might not need all of those Um, and definitely as a visual person it's helped me push how I see my dramaturgy and how I can see like a play on the wall as as well as like in the hand of a playwright Um, and being able to speak out and make mistakes in a way that you don't have to feel shameful about them Um, if you don't know a piece of history you don't know knowledge it's been so fantastic to be in a place where everyone is hungry to listen and learn I think that that level of openness is really important in any kind of especially now this may be coming this this is me not having a background specifically in theater the role of a dramaturg is it is it specifically intended for new works or is it also used in like if someone was mounting mammoth, would there be a dramaturg? Yeah, yeah, you can have dramaturgs <laughs> for everything, including concerts and documentaries. Um, they definitely come from a place as being like a historian or a brain, and not someone that is has the capacity to take on extra reading and take on research and report back, um, and also someone that assembles this knowledge somehow and gives it to the actors. Um, I have a tendency to make zines for everybody about things that I learned about the play which has been really cool because this play centers on a zine of how to pick a lock that also doubles as a program I don't think I'm giving out too much yet but it's been really great have to we, bring those practices together have we intensely plugged you as a writer yet because like first off oh. you write for Scappy, mm-hmm, but also mm-hmm. like you write for a lot of places mm-hmm. and everything you write is fantastic yes I appreciate that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I am also going to out myself as like a rumbling around 22 year old. It's been really stressful as like an emerging everything and early career everything to really get these seats at the table. So I think once I've started writing, a lot of people have been able to see like, ooh, yes, that voice. And I've been able to find other people that meld and drive in that way. So I've been super blessed to find incredible mentors like Tanuja and Tara on I no this idea process. You were 22. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, so I, so I, my, 
original thought stemming from your explanation of your experience and throughout this process was I think it's so important specifically in explorations of new work that that openness is there that there is that space to feel free to be like I don't know what you're talking about there or ooh like I absolutely missed that that's on me I'm wondering if I'm wondering if that's an anomaly like if that's if if that openness in exploration of new theater is is rare or if it's becoming more common yeah i think it is super rare (laughs) um i think in our room since we're um most all femme or non-binary we come with a presence that we deserve to already be at this table so there's not this backpedaling of trying to prove yourself and being scared to say something um and a lot of and like in my like training as a dramaturg it's been very stressful to manage your own anxiety and wondering if you're good enough do you belong in the room and how to like not misspeak not misstep not try to hurt someone or say something cohesive um so being in a room i think that has been so femme powered and people of color and non-binary i think there's a certain liberation that i haven't felt in other rooms before um and there's definitely a power dynamic more that is like the director has all of the power blah blah blah. like that's how it is and that's how people are compensated too so it's not Mm -hmm. just like the power you receive it's also the compensation and how that falls so i think in a process that is more equal on most of the terms there's just this understanding of where everyone's coming from and the work and the effort that they're putting into it i think it's a very this is a very rare liberating process from my experience wow we definitely have a few minutes left before we have a few minutes left and that we actually well oh. tara has a thought i had a i think i had a question about your question okay um which was were you asking if a process that is being done with a piece of art that has already gone through a new play development process should have an open should have an open process like this i i mean i've Generally speaking, I think that all collaborative spaces should have an open process. Yeah. I just I just know, I'm just speaking to my my question had specifically to do with the added layer of vulnerability had the added layer of vulnerability involved with workshopping something new. Mm. Whereas, you know, if if it's your fourth Hamlet, there's less vulnerability there there is definitely vulnerability but not in the same way as like oh god (laughs) this is the first time this playwright is seeing this on its feet um yeah i hope did that yeah it makes sense cool for sure all right (laughs) the kind of like thoughts i'm I'm curious about and want to leave with is something that we we uh heart like ask about occasionally um but i think it, it feels particularly uh relevant here um i'm curious with with all of this um what does it mean to be doing this work where you are doing it what does the city of chicago and this scene and this space um mean to this work and and how has it framed it it's like a pregnant pause right yeah it's a good one though um 
I'm fortunate to have come from collaborators that are actively engaged in politics as activists. Um, Christiana Ray Cologne being one of them. She and I have collaborated on like, I think like eight of her plays full length to 10 minute, etc. And she's also the founder, well, one of the founders of the Let Us Breathe Collective. And so I think she was the first person who posed this question to me of can we center people in this process? And so that question being posed like four years ago or five years ago was like, (laughs) I don't know, it's kind of like seeing blue for the first time. You're like, I thought I was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so then you like, you have to go through that work of unlearning um, oppressive power structures and Mm -hmm. how to then bring that to a rehearsal room and the way that this play is engaging with that is very much like how are they bringing that into this skill share this idea of prison abolition this idea of working toward uh, collective liberation and so I think that the ways in which that they challenge each other and they fail each other and they rescue each other. Um, uh, I think it's it's very close for me um, as an artist in terms of like what I'm trying to to do and to navigate. And so like lifting Christiana and the Let Us Breathe Collective. Yes. And then also like Anne Bogart, whatever. She has this quote that that I'm like living in right now. Um, which is that it's the revolution in the smaller rooms that make the larger rooms possible. And so because Tanuja has written this play wherein the audience is actively engaged and like very close uh, <laughs> to our people and like engaging in the Skillshare, how are we maybe introducing them to the color blue mm. um, and so they can start along their own path? Not saying that by the end of this, they're all going to be like, prison abolition for me. Like, I hope so. That would be so awesome. But also, like, just this idea that maybe we're exposing somebody to something in a way that they can understand. Mm. Well said. Um, Do you want to speak to it? Um, A lot of folks that I've come across um, are really concerned and curious about how, how can I practice community accountability um, in a way um, that feels okay, Mm. ultimately, and that that results in justice, whatever that is. And I just know a lot of folks um, have a lot of questions. And um, there are workshops um, put together by like Shira Hassan, Miriam Kaba, that are like community accountability 101, you know, but not everybody can make it to those. And um, attending a workshop um, isn't sufficient. And they know this. That's why um, Shira's practice is called just practice, right? It's about (laughs) doing the practice and doing the work so that you feel confident enough to get into the room to engage these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, 
I have the privilege and honor of working with folks sometimes when they're in a community accountability process. And um, I'm just fascinated by how um, even when we do come up with agreements that guide our process, um, how hard it Mm. is to put those agreements into practice um, in the same room. Yes. Right? In the moment. Um, and I'm just so fascinated by that question. Um, so how do, you, how do you practice your values? How do we practice our values in the moment? How do we mess up and try again, um, which is an act of vulnerability, which requires trust in the room mm. um, and yourself and trust that you will be forgiven for your mistake right and i i i i am new to theater i have to say um i was an acupuncturist for about 10 years before coming to theater um it's a long-ish story um but the short story is um i co-founded sage community health collective with three other people um and we were built around harm reduction trauma-informed practice and body positivity which includes sex positivity and fat positivity um and so when i left when i closed stage in order to focus on theater i was like okay these are three frameworks that we practiced in the acupuncture room um and all of our workshops um i want to bring these to whatever theater practice i get to participate in um in 2016 i did not know uh, I had no, I had no, oh my, I had no clue that I'd be sitting here with these people and you. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And I literally walked into Chicago Dramatists and I was like, do you have internships? And um, Anthony Mangini, um, who was the office manager at the time, was like, oh yeah, send me your resume, send me your cover letter. Um, And I became an intern. Um, The internship turned into a job because theater admin turnover (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I met Tara right I started studying with Dana Lynn Formby Um, I met Megan Beals right and a host of amazing brilliant wonderful completely generous people who let me be in the room Um, Kristen E. Dashok like I'm not gonna go down the list but it's a long list Um, I apologize if you should be on the list and I didn't name you. Um, Yeah, so um, I have been given the gift of being let in, right? People have opened their doors in their rehearsal rooms to me um, and primarily Tara, right? Like, yeah, I think from the the get-go, Tara's been like, oh yeah, you're coming with me. let's do this i'm like i don't know what i'm doing do what you do right (laughs) yeah so you know and i just i so i cannot speak to what um the trend has been in theater but i can speak to what i have experienced since 2016 and yes i will absolutely say people are horrifying (laughs) to each other (laughs) like we we and i saw this in acupuncture i saw i see we see this everywhere we see this in social justice spaces right we embody 
the peak of humanity as well as the trough. Um, mm. And can we embrace both of those things at the same time and still continue building the better world, right? Yes. I say yes. What say you? <laughs> I say yes. <laughs> cool. Well, what has your experience of Chicago been? Like, what is Chicago as a place to create mean to you? I'm still figuring it out as well, mm-hmm. um, especially in theater writing. I didn't come to it because I wanted to. It was out of a need and an anger um, that the way shows were being covered just wasn't mm-hmm. happening with a cultural competency mm-hmm. that I saw was mm-hmm. fit for the art and the artists that were creating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when being forced to put my own um, like fingers to keyboard, if you will, I started writing about the theater that I saw on stage and I figured out what theater I wanted to start actually making. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from the background of like being an oral historian, I do a lot of work listening to other people's words and that's what it is, not doing anything with those words. So I felt uh, definitely more empowered to figure out how to move as a dramaturg in those spaces and coming at it with more of a deep listening and a do no harm mentality, knowing that you can't really control how much harm you um, might give onto someone, but then having in meeting like Tunisia and Tara, realizing that there's ways to acknowledge those harms in those spaces. So as I move through Chicago theater, being an artist, a dramaturg, a writer, I want to be able to bring these practices that I've been slowly learning and infiltrating in me to other spaces. What does it mean to really have a brave space and a collective agreement and bringing the more empathy and to these spaces. Um, so I have hope <laughs> and I'm very excited to be moving forward with the creators that I so believe in and work that I've never seen before. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. For thank having you. Thanks for having us. Great. Yeah. Um, so the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes that's very obvious, like letting people know about a show that opens up in eight days and where they can find out how to go to it. <laughs> Otherwise, we love hearing shout outs to other folks that are doing dope work yeah. or any self care <laughs> things that you're doing, uh, movie, music, or not self care, any media that you're consuming, self care or otherwise. It doesn't have to be. It could be, I don't know, self harm, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to stop talking. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. So movies, TV shows, stuff like that. Or or plugs. Well, on Saturday, uh, the monsters we create is a co-production between Pop Magic and the Martin Theater. It's happening at ooh, I think seven o'clock at the Martin Theater, and every there are I think ten artists that are doing performance pieces that are also experimental. I'm attempting to make an audio doc and play cello to it. So. You also play cello? I'm getting back into it. Yes. I love the cello. I love it's a beautiful it. instrument. It's a good... That's. I hope to keep it beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Saturday. And you should go to that um, because... Uh, shameless plug uh (laughs) some of the proceeds go toward a project that i'm devising starting in may um called fat folks uh which is specifically 
about larger bodied people uh, moving through space and the challenges that mm-hmm. face them um, through the container of public transit. Beautiful. Lit. That's oh really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, and th- uh, the project that we're working on, right? How to Pick a Lock. Yeah. Five Wednesdays at 9 p.m., mm-hmm. starting on the 23rd at Prop Theater. Check it out. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. Wait. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, uh, can I plug two things? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, Cloudgate Theater um, is putting up a play by Kristen Idashak called Strange Heart Beating. Um, but that's opening in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Free Street Theater is putting up a show called Still Here, um, examining what is still here in Chicago, despite all the changes that Chicago is experiencing. Um, and that's opening in August. Yes, but right? we'll, we'll have some other workshop performances happening at Green Line and other places around the city. Yeah. So, uh, I've got your summer suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. <laughs> if you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our articles and podcast episodes there. There. Uh, you can also find us on social media on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group that we love and adore called Sounding Board, where we talk about local arts, local politics, and astrology memes. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag, spelled the same way as the website, S-C-A-P-I-M-A-G. And you can also find the podcast, the one that you are listening to right now under most podcast places, including Google Play, iTunes Podcasts, and Radio Public under Scopy Radio. And I'm here, as always, to talk about the importance of subscribing. If you head to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. The first is to sign up for email blasts. This is huge because even though we post across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The second thing you can do is become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help us pay our artists and keep our lights on. Uh, If you're in a position to do so, there are some cool incentives associated with it, so please consider it. Also, if you are a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and want to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So, give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. (laughs) Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep. <laughs>